when it does this, that means that the video. Uh, oh, yeah. I can see it on the top as well. Right, it says start. It hasn't started yet. Now it started. Okay. Okay. Basically, the way that Skype works is, is that before the recording starts, you and I were in direct communication from my IP to IP. Well, when we uh, click on the recording, that means that your signal is redirected to the Skype computer where uh, mine is also, so that recording can be done. So that's uh, okay. a really nice service that, uh, because it doesn't take any horsepower off of either one of our laptops. One thing is now, like your video is stuck. I can't see you. Um, let me see. I, I can see you and I can hear you. And, and now you turned your camera off. Now it's on again. Like I can't see you, but I don't know. It's all right. Well, I'll turn my camera off and back on. <laughs> ah, no. Yeah. So, let's, let's talk about books for a moment, uh, to, so that you can kind of get the understanding. Um, there's a number of things that have, uh, or a number of topics that have a lot of books written about them, and yet no one can gain that particular kind of skill by merely reading a book. An example would be golf. Another one would be football. You cannot learn how to play football yeah. <laughs> from a book. You cannot learn how to play music from a book. And guess what? You cannot learn how to think correctly from a book, especially if you already started off correct thinking incorrectly, which is the way people do. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes pretty much sense. I've already heard stuff like it was a swimming example, like you can't, you can't learn about understand. breast swimming by just <laughs> reading a by book. Reading a book. Exactly. If, however, you're already a good swimmer, you can pick up some tips from a book. But that's because you already know what you're doing. I would go so far as to say that learning how to clean out the mind and the attendant stuff around that is possibly the most difficult thing to learn to do. And it's not, and, and it, uh, uh, as far as books go, uh, books are not very helpful. An example of that would be nowhere in the book is it going to be, say, on page 96, and you read down page 96, and it says, wait a minute, boy, you're not in on, you, you don't belong on this page. Go back to page 19. That's where you belong. Go back there and read that, because you're not doing 19. Why should you be on page 96? Okay. Exactly. <laughs> Books don't do that for you. Yeah. And another one is, is that unless the book has the intention of inspiring the student, then the students generally don't get much inspiration from a book. Some novels are inspiring. Sometimes 
uh, Dhamma Sutras are really inspiring, but they're only inspiring to people who are already skilled with them. But that the Dhamma often is quite quite inspiring um, when it's understood correctly, the Dhamma of, of the Buddha. So this is an important recognition is, is that many people are having trouble uh, in getting uh, their practice going by reading a book. Yeah. And then it doesn't really matter who wrote the book or which book it is. Um, the same thing is almost true the way that retreats are done in the West. In the sense of people decide to do a retreat, they sign up for the retreat, they go to the retreat, while they're in the retreat, they have limited um, contact with the teacher. And then at the end of the retreat, game is over. You paid for the retreat. You did the retreat. Business deal is done. And now there's no follow-up. Right? And in that regard, uh, almost the same issues with reading a book are concerned with... Uh, a retreat and yet if you um, understand the suttas and, and um, the way that uh, the Buddha Sangha in Thailand and other places work that much of the actual teaching is done through personal intercommunication especially the inspiring part Um, kind of, I guess an example of that would be that now that the uh, Corona-19 uh, virus is, is out, there's a number of um, late night shows and comedy shows that had to be taken to the guy's home, oh. which means he does not have a live audience. Oh, okay. <laughs> right? And that live audience has a whole lot to do with it. So if you were reading the transcript of that and he came down to the end of the joke, nobody's laughing in the book. Or maybe uh, the best you can do is just have laugh line <laughs> or an, uh, 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 the applause uh, light comes on or whatever. So now you're beginning to understand what we're talking about is, yeah. is that there is um, a personal transmission and that personal transmission mostly has to do with building up right attitude, including enthusiasm for the practice and um, the way that it's done and the inspiration that it takes for the students to uh, get good value out of it. And so this is what is offered here on Skype is, is that the student has a personal relationship with someone who has also had a personal relationship one after another all the way back. And my teacher was Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, and he's quite famous. Have you ever heard of Bhikkhu Buddhadasa? To be honest, no. Okay. 
uh, be sure to look him up. Okay, okay. He's on the internet. Just Google uh, Buddha Dasa is all you need to, uh, and you will surely find the reference to the website. Okay, got it. All right. Uh, the, the main website is called BIA. Okay. BIA is uh, uh, is Buddha Dasa Itapanyu Archive in Bangkok. And that uh, much of the work that they do, most of it is in Thai language. But there have been a number of, of works of his that's been translated into English. Okay. But my relationship with him was personal. I was really lucky to have that kind of relationship with him and other monks in Thailand. Uh, so that when I get a good idea and I can run it across the teacher and find him laughing at me because I don't have a clue about what I'm talking about. And the books won't do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I noticed, like someone to reference to when I have questions, when I have doubt about the practice, if I'm doing it wrong, if practice is right or should I switch to whatever to matter to all the million stuff that is out there. Okay, when meta is done correctly, it is exactly the same thing as Anapanasati when it's done correctly. They just have different perspectives. So let me ask you this, what would you think that they advertise as the outcome of what is one of the good features of Meta. Hmm. Inter. Like, <laughs> I've read the book by Sharon Salzberg and like, she's always talking about interconnectedness and like being able to relate to others through Meta to understanding that they suffer as well and want to be happy as well. So, okay. compassion, I would say. You missed it. You, you okay. said it, go back. To be able to relate to others, but that's compassion. So what? You can relate to each other with a gun in your hand, pointing it at them, tell me, give me your money. That's to relate with other people. Okay, <laughs> maybe relating to them in a loving kindness way. <laughs> All right, now we're getting closer to the point. <laughs> <laughs> And that's very interesting that that's what you got out of Sharon Salzberg is relating with people. When you've already been relating with people, you don't need to know how to do that. All you need is English language and maybe a feeling or two and perhaps a, um, um, a belief and off you go. <laughs> and many of those uh, uh, relationships wind up in a tragedy. So, um, let's, let's delve in a little bit more then. What is advertised? What is it that is expected from a practice of metta? Um, I think maybe the basic stuff to have the sincere wish to wish others well. Well, why would you want to do that? Because we are all interconnected and all on the same, I don't know, like all one, like she's always talking about that we are all one. And because of that, 
by feeling interconnected with yeah, everyone. Well, so what? So let us say that this interconnectedness is like a, uh, a rope that's tied to your arm and tied to mine. And here we are both floating in the ocean. <laughs> um, so what if we're one? So what if we're tied together? Let's keep going in this. Um, yeah, even then, right? Like to find a way to show love or whatever to someone, even if you are forced right. to. What is love? Because I know different kinds of love. In fact, the caddy call of, don't you just love her dress? That's love. <laughs> I would say like, a, a, yeah, a wish of well-being to someone without any condition attached to it. Like without saying, if you do this, I like you. If you do this okay, for me, so I like you, you want them to have well-being. Exactly. Like without. Do you even know what that is? Uh, I think no. Oh. Because okay. I've tried to to create. So you like, want someone else to have something you don't have. Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't know how it feels like or okay, whatever. Okay. So now that we've gotten down to that. Do you think that that's actually the correct practice of metta is to try to wish on someone some good benefit that you yourself don't have? How do you know it's even good if you don't have it? <laughs> that's a good question. I thought maybe just the wish is enough to to like have a, I don't know, a framework to think about like, yeah, okay, this is good. This it is expected to be good. It, it's a magic wish. It will if it is what? If it's a magic wish. Okay. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of Buddhism comes down to is a magical thing, a magical wish. And that's very interesting uh, that you explained the book that you read the way that you did, because as you can tell, you kind of missed the point. Yeah, I think so. And if you miss the point of the book, maybe others will miss the point of the book. Even And we don't even know when the author wrote the book what her point was. All we know is that you read the book and you missed the point. All right. So basically, uh, let's start from the very beginning, from the very top, when the Buddha uh, said that what he teaches is both before and uh, in the current time when he said that, that he teaches only one thing, just one thing. If he's teaching just one thing and metta is in it, that means that metta at best is kind of a sub-item. Okay, so one thing that the Buddha teaches that is the entire thing is almost like... Um, have you ever seen, for instance, a lot of... You know what I mean by coat hanger? And you get a whole pile of them, and you can actually get a whole bunch of coat hangers by just picking up a piece of one of them, because they're all kind of come together. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's the way that this phrase works. 
And that phrase is, in Pali language, dukkha, dukkha naroda. Have you ever heard the word dukkha before? Uh, I think it's like a Pali word for suffering, right? It is a Pali word, and when it is translated as suffering, everybody misses the point. I think I missed the point. <laughs> that in fact, you could walk around with a Dhamma book all over the place asking one person after another, hey, I've got something really nice here I'll give you if you're suffering. And what will people say? Well, I'm not suffering. I don't need your book. Okay, because I would say exactly the other thing. Yeah, give me that. <laughs> oh, because you actually are suffering, I see. Okay. <laughs> are you? I don't you know. You look like you're suffering to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's got to be a different way of looking at dukkha other than through the word suffering. Okay. A better way of looking at it is dissatisfying. Not good enough. Even B plus is dukkha, if you want an A. Okay. Okay. So, dukkha is, is unsatisfying, it's unsatisfactory. And that um, from the beginning of history, um, before whatever our ancestors were came anywhere close to uh, humans, way back even before um, apes. There was an, an instinct built in, a set of instincts. We can see that instincts um, uh, that we call self-preservation instinct. And in, in the deep dark past, uh, according to Darwin's theory, survival of the fittest meant that, and we can pretty well understand that things don't survive, that things are, are fit for a while and then they no longer survive. We don't have, for instance, any more dinosaurs left, but we have a huge amount of information to prove that they were here, right? And that you also have a great amount of information to prove who your great-great-great-grandfather was, probably. But you have full evidence he's not here. And then we understand everything dies. And yet there's an instinctual thing that keeps us alive and prevents death for a certain period of time. In other okay. words, self-preservation instinct will work for a while, and then it fails. And that our society depends upon it. And so there are other things that you could call instinctual that promote that and work together with it. An example of that would be the herding instinct or the nesting instinct, which you can see in schools of fish. Our birds of a feather flock together. When the gun goes off at a big noise, they circle, and then all of the birds go off in the same direction. Schools of fish. Uh, the, do the barking dog uh, barking uh, at uh, a herd of sheep, 50 or 100 or whatever. What do the sheep do? 
do four or five of them get their billy goat gruff up and go and confront that dog and say, you shut up or I'm going to smack you and my friends here are going to hold him while I do. No, they all get into a herd and then they can be herded. The dog's in charge because the, the, uh, the, the, the sheep are afraid and because they're afraid, they collect together in a tight herd. Same thing with wildebeest when the lions are around. Right? If you understand that, then you can understand that that is the, the instinct that is the driving force of human society. Okay. And your own home. Okay, our home life and how we collect together and how we want to be uh, loved. And so a lot of the idea about around Meta has to do with this herding instinct. That is natural and part of each one of us, but it's not very well managed. Okay. That in fact, what the whole process of uh, the Buddha Dhamma is, is learning how to take control over our instincts, not to destroy them, but to manage our lives very successfully and happily. And a great deal of that has to do with how we relate to other people. Mm-hmm. But if you yourself are not in a great state of well-being, then any wishing that you do for others to have well-being is nothing but magical thinking. And not only that, but sometimes it's even quite obvious where the students are sitting there, may all beings be happy. May all beings be free from suffering. That's the way that a lot of people do their meta, because they don't have a clue about what they're doing. Yeah, <laughs> could see myself in that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So basically, going back to that point of dukkha, dukkha naroda, the dukkha naroda is to end that suffering or to come out of it. Which means now we really have to see that dukkha and come out of it. And the way that we can see the dukkha is by seeing how it got started and what's the source of all of this stuff that's happening right now. And then we come out of it right now and we recognize that right now I'm not suffering. I'm free from it right now. I don't have it right now. Maybe later, I don't know, but right now I'm good to go. I love it. Okay, that's the third noble truth. I'm free from suffering. And then the fourth noble truth is, oh, I got to do this, that, and the other thing. And when I do these things, I will have um, the ability to change it from Dukkha to Dukkha Naroda. And I can enjoy life in the third noble truth. And if I can get to that third noble truth of being free from suffering, then I can wish that same state on others. Okay, so just at but this you can point, imagine a, you can imagine a philanthropist 
who has hundreds of millions of dollars in his old age. He recognized what a crook and an asshole he's been his whole life, and so he decides to give all of his money that he made um, uh, away in philanthropy. And so he's now sharing metta in the form of money of that which he had. But guess what? Let's say that same guy, the year before he decided he wanted to be a philanthropist, or maybe the year that he is becoming a philanthropist, he goes bankrupt. And now he's got no money. All he's got is the attitude that he wants people to have money, but he ain't got none to give them. So this is another way of looking at metta. Is that if we don't have it, it's not worth value. Okay. Which means that if you are going to look at metta from the sense of kindness, and by the way, uh, the Dalai Lama actually years and years ago made a statement that wound up being a bumper sticker for a while in certain communities, which said, uh, kindness is my religion. Then quote Dalai Lama. All right. Now, what he was doing was he's talking about metta. But he didn't say loving kindness. And we'll talk about that um, uh, on and on, because loving, or the word love, has the quality of it must be, because I like it, it must be worth having. And because it's worth having, I want it. So when the boy says, I love you, to the girl, Really, what he's saying is, I want you very much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what he's saying. And when we understand love to be that, then we can take love out. Love's got nothing to do with it. If you don't want anything, that you're just merely well-wishing. So it's not loving kindness, it's just real kindness. But the question is, if you cannot be kind to yourself, how can we expect you to be kind to other people? Probably not. All right. So maybe then metta starts at home. I've heard that before, using the word charity. Charity begins at home. Deep within your own mind. Now, let's get, <clears throat> get back to the idea of the instincts. The self-preservation instinct has a primary method of communication that we call fear. In other words, fear is the motivator to get us out of danger. And that this fear comes out of a part of the mind that's in the anterior uh, area of the brain. Um, and that uh, this is sometimes called the reptilian brain because it looks remarkably like the, the brain system of an alligator. Which basically means that anything that an alligator can do, you can do too with that part of your brain. Wrestle other alligators, walk, swim, see, hear, all of that stuff is associated with basically the wiring connection from the brain to the body, but there's a whole lot of brain that the humans have that alligators don't. 
One of them would be the ability to have language, the language processing capabilities. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the other, the frontal cortex, is used to be able to see things clearly, to be able to understand what's going on. But that old reptilian brain that has that source of the um, uh, self-preservation instinct is still there, still in full operation, and still treating the world as if it were dangerous. And therefore, we are in self-preservation mode often when there's no need to be. In other words, you can think of it as a lot of false positives. And so people begin to experience fear, especially as children. When we are little kids, there's a lot to be afraid of. Like falling down when you're a toddler. Right? Like getting spanked because you don't know how to fit in with the, um, uh, the herd. <laughs> um, so... We start off um, in a one-down position, a child's position, uh, one that needs to be taken care of, one that is driven primarily through uh, emotions that are based in fear. And as we grow up, we continue with that. But in fact, you could say that when we're, by the time that we're four years old, that most kids spend about Oh, 70, 80% of their time in play, in um, investigation, in uh, imagination, uh, writing on the walls, all kinds of things, enjoying themselves. But by the time we're adults, it's the other way around. We spend about 70 or 80% of our time in bad feelings. And there's a reason for that, and that is... It's instinctual that we should remember the dangers, stay out of it. But unfortunately, we don't tend to remember the good times. For instance, little Johnny is there writing on the wall with his crayons, enjoying himself for 15 or 20 minutes, got a beautiful piece of art going, and mom comes in and catches him writing on the wall. He could have been a Rembrandt. He could have been a Picasso. But no, his art skills were cut right then. Mom, if she had been smart, she would have told him how beautiful it was. Do you want an art kit? We'll get you a really good art kit. Right? But no, mom gets unhappy because of some old rule, like the house is not worth as much with the wall having children, so she's got to go scrub and and feel bad or whatever, they could have left that art on the wall. They could have given them the whole art wall to paint. But the old rules. And so now the little kid has gotten fussed at. He'll remember that, and that will influence his ability to draw and other things in his life later on because of the trauma that he went through by being spanked or scolded for doing what was quite nice, quite beautiful. That happens to every child. In a way, you probably heard the uh, expression post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. Every child grows up 
with post-traumatic stress disorder. Every one of us. It's a disorder. It's after the stress, but we are still traumatized by it. So that now we can be traumatized slightly by an email that comes in that we haven't opened yet. So, if that's the case, then what we need to do is to kind of reverse the programming that we've grown up with. All of the old uh, traumas, all of the old stuff needs to be forgotten and then not used in processing new information, that we're going to process new information with a better memory system that we compile over time, a wholesome system. So basically what we're doing with this idea of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda is we're actually saying we're going to throw out unwholesome thoughts and unwholesome feelings and replace them with wholesome thoughts and wholesome feelings. And that that needs to be done in the here now, whenever we remember it, when we wake up, we can say, okay, I can change it right now. You don't have to say, I'm going to feel good from now on because we don't know the future, but we can say, I can feel good right now. But just so, saying it. Well, by, yeah, actually, if you are in a set of bad feelings and you catch yourself at that, now the new thought is, hey, I don't have to think about that. I can feel good right now. Okay. And so we can forget about it. And be in this present moment with pleasant thoughts. Oh, what a nice day. What a nice breeze. Good temperature, good air. Ah, delightful. All right. So these are good, wholesome kinds of thoughts. Rather than. Oh, I don't know what that lawyer is going to say in that letter. (laughs) But is it then like an effort to like if you catch yourself to say, yeah, okay, that's enough now. Let's go with some happy thoughts. Yes. How often can you do that? Okay. Because. Because, Go ahead. um, Like I actually I wrote some stuff down and kind of fits here is because when I started meditating again, like two days or three days ago, whatever, and people are talking always about mindfulness and daily life and to be aware of the body and exactly that, to know your states of feeling. Um, it's not that hard for me. Like I, when I have my commute for 30 minutes, like I always remember like, okay, I have to be in the moment, like I'm in the moment, whatever, but it's so boring and I don't want to do it. Okay. Like, well, you made you made an important statement that you probably weren't quite aware of, and that was you used the idea of be aware of your thoughts, to be aware of your body, to be aware of your feelings. Was that the kind of language that you were using? Yeah. Yeah, okay. The answer to that, or actually the question to that is, well, so what? You suffer, and you weren't quite aware of it, 
or you were dissatisfied or disappointed and you kind of was aware of it. But now that you're doing meditation, you're fully aware of it and fully knowing how unsatisfying your life is in this moment. What's the point of that? Sounds to me like that you're even suffering more now that you know about it, that when you weren't quite watching what was going on, things were a little bit more okay. Yeah, and like it's like it's an easy process. For example, when I get home, it's way easier to just four hours of mindless YouTube and just numb myself than, mm -hmm. I don't know, trying to be wholesome maybe. Okay. People do that all the time. We really do need to get out of our own way every day. Every day, so everyone generally spends some time being not selfish, not protective, not in fear. We, we can turn our attention to a television. But many people, when they turn their attention to the television, they see something they don't like, and now they're selfishly involved with the television. But it is possible to turn on the TV and become absorbed in it just as a story. And you don't really uh, uh, get very uptight. But if you watch the news, then people can get really unhappy and upset and back in the same place that they were before because they don't like what's on TV. Okay. So even um, with that with YouTube, you can spend some time uh, looking at YouTube uh, that's innocuous or that at least it's taking you off of your own problems. And then there's other YouTube videos that you can watch and you can get downright really unhappy, angry. Okay. Um, an example of that would be for engineers. That engineers generally like to watch uh, videos that have to do with engineering projects. But if he's a really, really excellent engineer, he may, in fact, be watching the video and see some things that the engineers on the uh, documentary are doing. And he says, wait a minute. <laughs> and now he's feeling bad because he's caught them using wrong tools or uh, not using the technique that he knows about, et cetera, like that. And so we can get right back into our bad feelings. So you can't say that um, YouTube or the TV is that much of an escape. Okay. But it can be, and everyone needs this every day. Every one of us. In fact, people who are uptight 24 hours a day generally don't last long. Because of the bodily chemistry that's going on. When someone is angry and stays angry and angry and angry, and yet he doesn't have any workout, or any punching bags to punch on, or anything like that, it will actually be harmful to his body. People give themselves strokes and aneurysms and all kinds of things because their blood's all messed up, because of their feelings are all messed up. But most of us are able to get into a good state part of the day, part of the time. Maybe even 10 or 20% of your day is okay. Leaving only about 80% of it is just rat shit. 
so basically what we want to do is to start practicing a way that starts to shift that ratio. Mm -hmm. And that we practice that right here in this very moment. So basically what we can say is, is that we spend about 80, maybe 70% of our time in Dukkha and about 20% of our time in Dukkha Naroda. And that we can change that ratio through practice. And we do that in several ways. One of them is, is by becoming on guard for, in fact, what is not wholesome. And so we start to dwell in the wholesome, having wholesome thoughts. But we have to understand what is unwholesome as unwholesome. So one of the things in this uh, part of the skills that the student develops is what is dukkha? What is a cow pie of the mind that you don't want to step on? Okay. Okay. What are the kind of thoughts that you don't want to have? Uh, anxiousness, anger. Uh, well, those are feelings, but oh, the thoughts yeah, that yeah. lead to those <laughs> things. Yeah. Okay, so if you don't like somebody, thinking about that person will bring up your anger. Yeah, except, yeah. for example, my coworker. Like. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe the thing to do then is not while you're sitting on the cushion, but all the time that you're not at work. You have the strong intention, I'm not going to think about work. Yeah. Because if I think about work, I'll think about that guy. And if I think about that guy, I'll get all pissed off again. So I'm going to avoid thinking about work altogether. Yeah. Okay. Why? Because thinking about work may lead to suffering. And I would prefer not to. Now, we're using the word suffering here actually as the, the... as if it were a tiny little suffering or a tiny little dissatisfaction. Okay. Okay. Just a tiny little dissatisfaction as opposed to a tiny bit of satisfaction. That we learn to become satisfied by a training. But would the training then be not think about work as a co-worker and to avoid it? Or to somehow make it wholesome? No, no, avoid it completely. You don't have the skills (laughs) to make it wholesome yet. Okay. That in fact, the Buddha was very big on talking about staying out of the past. And we consider the past as a hindrance. That in fact, the further back in the past, the worse it gets. And so we should avoid pondering about the past altogether and stay more focused on what's happening right now. That in fact, whenever we go into the past, almost always we'll uncover some work to do, some problem to solve, something that needs to be done in the mind. And so now we're making plans. Right? And nobody ever gets their plans. And so you're setting yourself up for disappointment by planning. An example of that is you just came out of an argument with Aunt Susie. And you're mulling it over or perhaps even sitting down to do, in scare quotes, meditation. 
And while you're sitting there in, quote, quote, meditation, you're thinking about that argument that you had with Aunt Susie. And then you say, oh, I know what to tell her. And so you get up, you go start that argument with Aunt Susie again. And when you tell her what you thought you'd want to tell her, she's got an excellent comeback and just blows you out. (laughs) Well, Actually, while we were sitting there in square quotes meditation, we really haven't done any meditation. All we've done is what we're always doing. Dwelling in the past, thinking about something, coming up with a plan, and off we go. And that's our life, okay? We go, we're, in fact, we have been trained to become problem-solving machines. But the reality of the situation is, is that life really has far fewer real problems. And then, in fact, when we begin to see how few problems there really are, the more we inspect it, even the things that we thought were problems were not really problems, because we're now really getting good at understanding that things are really good right now. There really are no problems, but we have been trained to problem solve. It's almost a, a kind of a joke when we say is the biggest problem a human can have is to have no problems to solve. Because he's got no problems to solve, that means that he's defining himself as a problem solver. That means that he is worthless. And so what he's going to go do is he's going to go find some problems to solve. To give himself some value. And I think we all have done that. Yeah. Looking for something to do. Looking for some trouble to get into is how they <laughs> referred to it when I was a kid. So, basically, we have talked about it without naming it, but we have talked about the Four Noble Truths, that this is Dukkha. This is the cause of Dukkha, is because I'm in the habit of being in Dukkha. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I'm not in Dukkha. I should start watching more and more often when I'm not in Dukkha. And then there is the path. The Eightfold Noble Path. You probably heard about it, but only kind of in an intellectual way. And so today what we'll do for the rest of our time is talk about how the path itself is what we're practicing. That is the method. In fact, calling it a path uh, in English um, is misleading. Okay. It's used kind of in the sense of the path to success. But the way that we hear it is the path to town. In the sense that it's something that we journey down. But a better way of using it is is the word method. Or a set of skills to be developed or a set of tools that we need to have. Okay, and when we look at it like that, then we can name these skills and we see how they fit together. The first one is called right view. Okay. And why we call this right view is is that because we have at least enough right view to see enough dukkha. You would have never picked up a book and start reading and thinking about meditation if you'd already not seen that there was some value in it. And so as we inspect 
more and more and more, we will become more and more wise to what's going on. And so this is one's right view, and it develops in time along with these other skills. Now, the number one and most important skill is sati. And the word sati actually uh, is, has two qualities to it, but almost always sati is um, translated into English as mindfulness. And yet everyone that I speak to, they, I ask them, have you used the word mindfulness in ordinary conversation or do you use only the word mindfulness in relationship to Buddhism? Is it a common English language word? No. Just for, yeah, talking about meditation. All right, just about meditation. And so it's got two problems. One, it's an inaccurate translation. And number two, it's an obscure word that nobody really knows what it means anyway. Because it's not in common use. So a better translation for sati is um, to remember. But this to remember has the quality to wake up. To really wake up. Because if we wake up, we can wake up then to see. It's almost like this. You've heard the expression of wake up and smell the coffee? No. You never heard of that. Okay, it's it's an expression of look at what's going on, to wake up. Now, the smell of the coffee actually means to put your sense organs in play, to come and be here in this present moment, to wake up and to be here now. Well, if we were, uh, when we were not woke up, and we were not here now, where were we? Lost in thought, lost in space, lost in dangerous territory. And so uh, when we wake up and we remember, we can come out of it. An example of that is somebody wants to get very strong, uh, uh, how to say it? Uh, Mr. Universe, pumping iron, and all of that. He cannot do that if he doesn't remember to go to the gym. So everything is wrapped up with sati. If you remember to do it, you can do it. If you don't remember to do it, then the old habits will just be in play. Mm -hmm. You think of it kind of like as an automatic pilot in an airliner. The captain... Um, we'll let the automatic pilot go to make his life easier, and that's how most people live. But the problem with automatic pilots is the automatic pilot will run you into a mountain, it'll run you into a rainstorm, it'll run you into a flat flock of birds that will miss the airport. It's just, you know, going on its heading. Pretty stupid, like our instincts. And so the actual captain has to take the automatic pilot off so that he can actually uh, change the, uh, the heading or the altitude or land or whatever it is that he's decided to do. But in doing so, he's got to take over the airplane. So that's our life. Are we going to live our lives on automatic pilot? 
always running into a flock of birds or a rainstorm or turbulence or whatever? Or are we going to be able to run our lives uh, so that we take it off of automatic pilot very often so that we can live the life the way we want to live it? How do we do that? Is the captain has to wake up. If he's asleep, the automatic pilot's just going to keep going. When we wake up the captain, that's what we've got to do. This is called sati, is to wake up. Now, later we'll talk more about sati. We're just getting the beginning of it. But the next item on the list is right effort. That in the beginning, it does take some effort, but almost always when people are reading out of the book, they wind up putting in too much effort. And when they put in too much effort, winding up with all kinds of strains in the body, tension in the head, uh, shoulders get tight, all kinds of things can happen. And the funny part about it is, is that part of the goal is to relax. How can somebody sit on the floor to relax and wind up all tensed up even more? Because they're not practicing right. We actually need to remember to practice to relax. Well, most important thing that we need to relax first is what the mind is doing. Rather than spinning on, it needs to relax. Now, one of the ways to talk about this is to say that all your whole life, you have talked yourself into feeling bad. So now, if you can understand correctly, you can understand that you can also teach yourself how to feel good. Talk yourself into it. Start to have wholesome thoughts as opposed to unwholesome thoughts. Have happy thoughts instead of unhappy thoughts. Now, this is not something that I'm grabbing out of the air. In fact, this is actually listed as step 10 in the Anapanasati Sutta. Uh, once you wake up, the first thing that you do is to throw out whatever the mind was thinking about and bring it back into a state of happiness and joy as best you can in this moment. The Buddha had an expression. His expression was, aha, I see you, Mara which means, aha, uh -huh, I see what the mind is doing. And by saying that, that's the same thing that you read in the books or that you've heard from other teachers is you've got to pay attention to what the mind is doing. But here we have to go one step further with right effort, throw that out. Instead of dwelling on it or letting it be there. A really good way of saying it is, is that you only needed to see it well enough to see that it is, in fact, dukkha. That's all we need. When we catch that it is dukkha, there's no more investigation needed. No more investigation is needed. Okay? It's like picking fruit. This fruit that I'm picking now is either going to go in my bag because we can use it, or it's going to go into the bin because we can't. But what we've been doing most of our lives is just taking all of the fruit, whatever the mind comes up with. And now we're going to start discriminating. When are we going to do that? Every time we remember. 
Every time we remember, every time we wake up, we're going to say, hey, I'm not going to think about that thought. I'm going to think about something nice and pleasant instead. Okay, now, so is it necessary to, to bring this up to think about this happy stuff? Like, for example, if I remember, like, okay, I was anxious because well, I'm Well, you're not about in the habit of thinking happy stuff. You're in the habit of thinking garbage. Yeah. So it's going to take a little bit of effort to start thinking happy thoughts. Like how, how can I imagine it? Okay, then I remember I'm anxious about the exam, whatever. I remember that. And Do you I'm, want to okay. stay anxious? You know, and then I put the anxious away, let's say. And then I'm like, really, okay, let's think about something happy. I don't know, dogs. I'm not or... sure that you can put the anxious away, but you can t put the anxious thoughts away in the beginning. See, in fact, we could go so far as to say that in the beginning, we work with the mind a little bit and with the body a whole lot. And then more and more with the mind so that when we get good at manipulating our thoughts and examining and understanding and relaxing the body, then we can have the skills to deal with feelings. Okay. But the feelings come a little bit later, but for a lot of students, it doesn't, um, the, the feelings don't present themselves later, they present themselves right away. And so we have to start working with them right away, but we do that with, by working with the thoughts. In other words, if you're not having any thoughts that are going to work you up into bad feelings, but you're going to have wholesome, happy thoughts, then whatever mechanism in the mind that's leaking out all of those uh, chemicals that make you feel bad is going to dwindle off. And the kind of thoughts that are going to be happy are going to put the kind of chemicals in the body and in the, uh, the mind that are associated with happiness. So by breathing for a while over time, you can drain the, the, the bad feeling out. 10 or 15, 20, 30 seconds. Is all it takes generally. Slow for the beginner. But for the expert, they're not even going to get into that kind of state because they're going to see what the mind is doing. So I don't have to think about that. So this is one of the major changes from a lot of uh, ways that uh, Vipassana is practiced is they think that it's only insight. No. This is not just insight. This is doing something about what we see. And that is throwing that stuff out of the mind. So we begin to uh, guard the mind to have only wholesome thoughts. And not we, allow unwholesome thoughts in the mind. Like, I don't, like, I don't, sh I'm not sure if I get it. Um, have, when I catch an unwholesome thought, do I have to replace it with a wholesome or is it enough to let it go and be fine because it would be really... What are you going to replace it with? You, you are not going to tell me, oh, I have, I'm already developed to the point of no mind. I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah, probably not. All so right, I, so question is, if you're going to throw something out of the mind, what are you going to put in it? More crap? So I have to really think about something wholesome, like, I don't know, my family, whatever. Stuff well, that's... how about thinking about what you're doing right now? That's the most wholesome. 
thinking about your family is going to wind up getting you into a fight with a member of your family because you've done that often enough. Maybe it's better to avoid thinking about the family because that's not necessarily a source of good thoughts. If you're typical. I mean, I don't know your family. I just know that uh, families are like that for beginners. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In fact, for the experts, they for sure don't think about their families. Okay, Okay, so the wholesome thought would be to just replace it with okay i'm i don't know i'm i'm talking to you right now so i would think about i'm talking to you here's an example we look around and say wait a minute everything is good here there are no alligators on the wall there's no pythons on the floor there are no uh burglars breaking in the police are not ramming through the door everything is okay right now When you look at what's not there, you can say, wait a minute, things are really good right now. So that's how we begin to think good, wholesome thoughts, is to recognize we're not in danger. Uh, that's, yeah, that's pretty helpful. Yeah, we're not in trouble. We're not in danger right now. There's nothing that has to be done right now immediately. We're not in danger There is no task at hand. And so this is the kind of thoughts that we would have, is there's nothing to do, no place to go. Spring comes and the grass grows by itself. That's haiku. Husho wrote it. Let me give it to you again. No place to go and nothing to do. And the spring comes and the grass grows by itself. So this is the kind of mode to get into. And then you'll say, well, wait a minute. Tomorrow I've got to go do a bunch of stuff. Yeah, but that's tomorrow. Right now, you don't have to do that stuff. So why should you be thinking about it? Okay. So... So this is what we mean by guarding the thoughts and having only wholesome thoughts. And that is one's right effort. The other side of one's right effort is for the body. And the first thing that we do is we start breathing, breathing deeply, breathing well. This really is not called meditation. There is no word in the Pali. But what we do have in the Pali is the word anapanasati. Anapanasati is actually the Pali words for in-breathing and out-breathing. But that in the sutras it talks about it like this. To understand that this is a long in-breath. And then to understand that this is a long out-breath. So we begin to slow down the breathing intentionally. We start taking deeper breaths intentionally. And we start thinking about the breathing and the body. And those are good, wholesome thoughts. And so you can see it like this, that when we are not watching the breath and not maintaining a long, deep breath, the mind will wander away. 
And so if the mind wanders away, never mind, start again, come back and watch the body. Stop thinking about whatever it was that the mind wandered away to and start thinking about what the body is doing right now. This is the way to start. And, and if the, and, and if that the every time go ahead. And Pardon? then every time, like every time yeah. in daily life, I have to like try to stay somewhere in my body to not wander away. This is a good skill to be developed. And you will find that your mind, in fact, you already know this, that your mind has wandered away almost all the time anyway. So as we begin to do this practice, we begin to spend a few more mind moments in the daytime being in the here now. And then as we practice more, we spend even more time in the here now because we remember. We remember to wake up and to come into the present moment and be here now and throw out whatever the mind had wandered into. And pay attention to the body, pay attention to the breathing. Pay attention to the uh, atmosphere in the sense, hey, there's no gorillas attacking. Hey, the Gestapo is not here yet. <laughs> in the sense of so far, so good. No problems right now. No worries right now. Right now. In this present moment. And so we can, in fact, we can recognize that there really is, in any particular this present moment, there are no problems. That almost all of the problems have to do with past and future. And while we're not thinking about the past and not thinking about the future, or not having the mind hindered in any way, the mind will get very sharp, focused, able to pay attention able to guard the mind to keep things wholesome. And so we begin to um, let this development uh, into a longer period of time. We can sustain it longer is the right word to use. And so the first two skills that we need is one skill is to be able to get ourselves into a really pleasant, happy state. And then the second skill is to learn to maintain that happy state. Okay. And the happy state is like always this, there's no danger. This moment is fine. This moment is fine. Great. Nice. Wonderful. No problems. Okay. So that's all the books talking about looking for joy in the present moment. Like that's basically it. Don't look for joy. That's the problem. People are out looking for things as if the, this present moment was some sort of Santa Claus that was out with his bag giving people gifts. And all they have to do is pay attention to this is Santa Claus and they get a gift. No, this present moment is just there for you to either ignore or to enjoy. And that's up to you. That's one's right effort. It's not going to be a gift. You don't go looking for joy. You just make it. Just like you've always done. And the easy way to do it is by taking a deep breath. And relax.
Okay. And so we begin to feel good. Allow yourself to feel good. And you can talk yourself into feeling good. My, this is nice. This is easy. Just relax. Okay. It's not really hard, and it actually is not that different from what you thought that you were going to practice. But what you wind up doing is working too hard. And really, there's only two little jobs to do. This is all the work there is to it is, number one, to throw out of the mind wherever the mind had wandered to and start having happy thoughts. The other one is to take a deep breath. If you wind up giving yourself tension in any way, go ahead and give yourself a massage. Relax, 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 relax. Okay. So to somebody practice up is basically like remembering, unwholesome thoughts, throw them away and relax and take a deep breath. Exactly. Okay. Go practice that for a couple of days and give me a call and we'll continue on with it. We've only just, we haven't, this is not, this, if this is like an iceberg, we have not done the tip of the iceberg. We've only put our finger on it and wiped it. <laughs> <laughs> There's still a whole lot of stuff to do. Yeah. Okay. So uh, how, how does it work? Like just calling like it did now or writing your mail and we make an appointment or? No, uh, you can imagine that I don't take appointments. Yeah. <laughs> that okay. I answer calls. Generally, what the right thing to do, or the, let us say, the thing that tends to work is go ahead and call, and if I don't answer, then write a message. Okay. Okay. If I'm around, then I, I will answer, but I generally ask for five minutes. Okay. But if you just say, hey, are you going to be ready in five minutes, I may not get it. Yeah, sure. But if you call and I'm not there, then I won't see the call. Okay. But if you do both, then I'll get both or I'll, I'll get one or the other. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, let us say several days, maybe, uh, at least once a week to call at your okay. convenience. Nice. Yeah. Of course, sounds pretty good. All right. Cool. Then, okay. thank you. All right, so now you've got some ideas about how to get started practice, and later we'll go into more detail. But it's all based upon the Four Noble Truths around the practice of Anapanasati. Okay. Which uh, is mindfulness of breathing. One question, but I think it doesn't make sense, because you said don't read about stuff. Do you have anything to read? Not right now. Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> Because if you read something that's different from what I said, then you'll like that about it. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's get this practice down to where you can begin to get some value out of it. Because if you can get value out of it, then we can uh, start um, understanding how the Four Noble Truths works. Okay.
But this is not about blind faith, that you sit and you squat and you strain and you frustrate, hoping someday you're going to get some value out of it. Oh, no. You've got to have the value right away. So practice on giving yourself wholesome thoughts and, and good feelings and value from what you're doing simply because you remember to do so. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Great. I hope you feel inspired to go do it. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Marcel, nice. we'll see you. Have a nice day. Bye. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye.